care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. It was a hard week on Twitter. It's uh, for the leftist feminists among us. And I've uh, that's why I've been off Twitter. Um I feel like this podcast sometimes is like <laughs> it's just like an it's an addict's relationship yeah. with something. Is, I'm off it, I'm on it. It's just like trying to keep track of when you're off it on the wagon. A- absolutely. I mean, it, this podcast has very much been me chronologically having a breakdown (laughs) so i can't wait thank you everyone for for listening but i did some um i did some fun real life stuff what'd you do tell me um so i went to see um the live uh one woman show of fleabag phoebe waller bridges one woman show um they were actually playing it in here in new york they were playing it at the IFC center, which is a, um, an independent movie theater that's, and it was so fucking good. Um, and it's, it's just, it's just amazing. Like she does all these different voices. She does so many different characters. She like contort is able to contort her face and her body in ways that I just had no idea. Like she's so talented. I would die for her. I think that's where I've landed. I would lay down on train tracks for Phoebe Waller bridge. You stand. I stand. Um, I stand a tall woman who is, yeah, she's, she's a genius. I, I, there's just no, I can't believe. And also it's crazy to me that anyone can memorize two hours worth of dialogue. Yeah. I think she probably is like a theater background. She does. Yeah. But that's still like, I don't know. Maybe because I have no theater experience, so I just don't even know how that works in your brain. She's amazing. She's incredible. Um, and then I went to a rave. What? <laughs> and everyone was being cool. And I tried to um, wear rave-appropriate clothes, but I'm bad at that. And um, yeah, everyone... I did I did put on glitter. Uh, so... I put on some tasteful glitter, um, but I didn't take any any drugs, which I feel like would have been like some psychedelics would have been the mood. No, that's the wrong drugs for a rave. Really? Yeah. What are the right drugs for a rave? I mean, I think some people will disagree on this, but I really think psychedelics in a crowded environment is super stressful. Okay. Um, I don't know. I Yeah, I just think that I think psychedelics, you need a kind of a quiet, peaceful situation with maybe one or two good friends. But my goal this week on the podcast was like, I'm not talking about psychedelics again <laughs> because I, it's, I've totally overrepresented their influence in my life. I almost never do that. Every week I talk about how social media is ruining my brain and you talk about psychedelics. <laughs> so I'll talk about something totally different now. Uh, I'm writing a book right yes. now um, on it's a comedic book, but um, it's a, a real it centers on a real question which is uh what does some what is what would like positive masculinity look like um Mm. we've talked a lot about toxic masculinity so i'm trying to figure out what is the opposite of that and uh it's hard yeah yeah uh i've been like talking to a lot of people i got to interview margaret cho and kamau bell this week which was really awesome i also got to interview dylan marion 
uh, who is that podcast conversations with people who hate me and he is such a lovely human being really oh, wow truly fantastic person and uh yeah that was awesome and talking to him was really cool because um have you ever heard that podcast no i know the concept of it yeah so <laughs> i think it started with just him talking about like him talking to people who hated him online and just not necessarily looking for common ground but just looking for an understanding of each other's humanity and then he started mediating conversations between people who had bad online interactions that wanted to talk to each other and yeah i listened to a bunch of episodes of it in preparation for interviewing him and it it did kind of give me hope in a weird way again because like i don't know it was just I think that as people were listening to each other, they kind of felt like they could see where the other person was coming from a little bit. I don't know. I I liked it. It was interesting to talk to him about it. And it was interesting that a conversation about like online interactions ended up really kind of being a conversation about masculinity because Mm. that's, that's so, so much of what's happening on the internet. Yeah. I mean, that's really how you and I ended up connecting, right? Because it's like, I think that both of us were like, ah, we have these values, but like also we're really tired of being yelled at by men on the internet. So let's do this thing. Well, I think that goes to like a running theme in this episode, which is just that like a lot of times taking conversations offline is really helpful um, in like recognizing each other's humanity. But also, I don't know, because I also really did ruin a party this morning with taking my Twitter discourse <laughs> to the party. People were like, Kate, just have fun. Stop it. No one wants that for you. No one at this party wants to hear your case for why Warren has wavered <laughs> on Medicare for all. No one wants to hear it. But, but you know who does want to hear it? The listeners of this the pod. The listeners of and the podcast. What, and that's, that's what we're going to give it. We're going to give it to you. Okay. So, all right. We we are going to talk about a few things on this episode. We're going to talk about the GM strike. Uh, but the, there's also been a hot, hot Twitter debate on the left this week about where Warren stands on Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Um I think there was like a few things that kind of spurred this on. So the Working Families Party endorsed Warren, did not endorse Bernie as they did last time. People, a lot of Bernie supporters, very mad about that. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who have said very inflammatory things on the internet this week. Um, And then (laughs) other people said inflammatory things back to them. And it's really just been a mess. Um, and then Naomi Klein wrote this piece that, that I really like and really moved me. It's in the intercept. We'll put it in the show notes, but, um, she said, forget Bernie versus Warren focus on growing the progressive base and defeating Biden. And, um, there's another reason to resist attempts to turn Sanders versus Warren into a redux of the 2016 primaries eight months before the first vote is cast. Today's electoral dynamics are absolutely nothing like 2016. Mm-hmm. That was a two-way race between two candidates with radically different records and ideas in which one candidate's gain was really the other's loss. A winner takes all race that pretty much always turns into some kind of death match. These primaries 
are another species entirely. There is a small army of candidates with two of the leaders running on platforms so far to the left, they would have been unimaginable for anyone but a protest candidate as recently as 2014. The front runner, meanwhile, is eminently beatable, especially if Joe Biden keeps showing us exactly who he is, as he did about six times this week. Hell yeah. Totally agree, right? Cosine. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been like a little demoralizing to see people who stand Bernie Sanders and people who stand Elizabeth Warren really fighting each other. I think that you and I, Julia, were both people that were like really traumatized by the 2016 primary. Oh, yeah. That again was like our trauma bond, I feel. I that feel was like, like, that was the foundation of our friendship. We were trauma bonded by the 2016 <laughs> primary. <laughs> and probably my friendships now a lot yeah. too. I don't know. But um, they also do have some really meaningful differences. And I have been really sick of two things in these discussions. One, I'm really sick of people framing Elizabeth Warren as Hillary Clinton part two. That's absolutely not true. And it's absolutely sexist. But I have also really been annoyed by people framing Warren as like lady Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Because that's not true either. They have very different ideas. They have a very different theory of change. She's described herself as a capitalist to my bones, whereas he is a democratic socialist. And in some ways, some of the things that they want to do are the same. I think they're very aligned on certain issues, mm -hmm. but they're, they also, they also see a lot of things really differently. And I, yes. I think one of those things is Medicare for all. I don't think that Warren is as strong on Medicare for all as Bernie. I don't think that she comes anywhere close. And I think that people who really care about this issue should get on board with Bernie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I think you see it like a little more. I think you see it a little differently. I do. I, I mean, so I'll quote Warren, uh, herself. Um, she said, I support Medicare for all. She, in, I think in the last few weeks has like really, the way that I would liken it to is when Jay Inslee dropped out of the race, she adopted his, climate plan yeah and i feel that she is doing that with sanders's medicare for all plan um and she said uh i support medicare for all when they are good plans let's do it this isn't some kind of contest it's what's best for the american people meaning she uh, which i think she's something she's done over and over again is she listens to a lot of people and then she picks the best idea and she's like it doesn't have to come from her if she if it's the best idea it's the one that she goes with bernie sanders has been unequivocal for a long time now um about medicare for all single-payer health care and uh warren says that she again says that she supports medicare for all um and that she is open to other avenues any any number of avenues to getting there i'm not as concerned about warren kowtowing to the insurance industry like i don't i don't think that if in an elizabeth warren presidency do i think that private insurance would still have a major role in or a role at all no i don't because she said that she wanted to abolish private insurance and i have to like i i believe her when she says that i don't think that it is her number one legislative priority and i believe that it is bernie's number one legislative priority clearly and i think like day one of a bernie presidency is like dismantling 
the private insurance industry. I think that's totally fair. It's definitely been, it's probably been her most substantive and repeated critique on, uh, from the left is about her uh, kind of murky position about how exactly she plans to get to Medicare for all. And I think that there are a lot of people who question if she's going to go for it as much as she should. And it's a lot of speculation. I can honestly say I don't know, but I also, from her entire career, this is a woman who, you know, she's like the number one scholar on, uh, like bankruptcies and credit card uh, fraud and stuff like that. Like this is not someone who's built her career on protecting exploitative financial institutions. It's been quite the opposite. So I'm not as worried about that, but I know like, I agree with you that Bernie is more unequivocal and his platform on Medicare for all is more robust and clear. So I spent a lot of time reading about this and thinking about this this week because I think that there's a way, like, I think that there's a way that people are talking about this, like, either Warren is equivalent to Bernie on Medicare for All or she is lying and saying this, like, from an opportunistic place. And I actually don't think it's either one. Like, yeah. I, I believe that... I believe that Elizabeth Warren absolutely thinks that healthcare is a human right. Um, I'm, I don't feel confused about that, but yeah. I think that there's a way to consider that, um, the things that she said recently about it have been honest, but that also everything that she's ever said about it has been honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so Warren went all in on abolishing private insurance in June um before that at a cnn town hall back in march um she talked about she says when we talk about medicare for all there are a lot of different pathways what we're all looking for is the lowest cost way to make sure everyone gets covered so then she talked about a few different ways lowering the age down to 60 55 50 or potentially increasing the age so um like everybody under 30 gets covered by medicare um she talked about an employer buy-in an employee buy-in expanding medicaid whereas bernie is like pretty clear on like we should do this in four years and we should eliminate private insurance i think that it's possible that warren is open to a kind of like incremental moving towards that which i I totally think will not work um and the reason that i don't think that that'll work is because like i think that this is going to be like the political project and movement of a generation and you definitely can get people in the streets for something like medicare for all which you'll need to, but I don't think that you can get people in the streets for 15% more people over a 10 year period, which is what I'm worrying that this could end up being. So like some of the reasons that I'm worried that this could end up being that, um, is because one, because I'm sexist. Yes. Um, very, very uh, well established. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a long time sexist. Um, but also, um, so (laughs) Warren says that she supports Medicare for all, but she hasn't committed to saying like, what that is exactly on her website she's using language at this point like nobody goes broke um on she's also saying things like um with regards to mental health coverage that it should be affordable so that kind of leads me to believe um that i think those i think both of those things can be interpreted 
in a few ways i and that's what i think too i'm yeah. not sure i'm not sure that she doesn't mean medicare yeah, for yeah. all but like natalie sure wrote about this um who we've had on the show she wrote about this in a piece for jacobin of just like it's just really it's really not clear like it's mm-hmm. you know there's a couple bills for medicare for all um that have existed so far there's jaya paul's bill in the house um there's bernie sanders bill in the senate you know warren hasn't committed to supporting a specific one of those bills so I want to play a clip of Elizabeth Warren talking to Audie Barkin, who is an activist who has really come out extremely strongly for Medicare for all. Um, he has ALS and he has private insurance. And also his family is still paying like $9,000 a month in medical bills. Earlier during this presidential campaign, you were criticized by some advocates for not talking about Medicare for all and for not being clear about whether you would eliminate private health insurance. You have been much more full-throat lately. My observation is that your philosophical approach to a system failure is generally not to dramatically expand the size of the public sector, but to instead heavily regulate private sector actors and beat down their greed. Was that the source of your initial hesitation on the question of getting rid of private insurance, or was it something else? No. I think it was more about focused on transition than on endpoint. But there are areas where markets just don't work. Okay, so in this clip, I, I think that he does a really good job getting at some of the worries that people have about Elizabeth Warren. Um, but I think even if we take her at the kind of best faith reading and assume that she's being like totally honest, totally not opportunistic. There's still a few potential concerns. She says that she's concerned about the transition. She doesn't say like what that concern is about the transition. Like, does she think it goes too fast? Does she think it goes too slow? Nobody knows. Um, She pledged in the primary not to take money from big donors, specifically not to trade money for access um you know i think that like i think that health insurance companies are are really 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 going to be working hard on her she she may be potentially taking their money she's definitely said that she doesn't believe in unilateral disarmament referring to like trump taking big corporate donations and her not doing that you know we know that money influences things um i don't think that she is a centrist in the way that Obama's a centrist in the sense that like she's not going to fill her cabinet with Republicans. But I do think that she could potentially fill her cabinet with some, yeah, probably I think it'd be a mixture of progressives and also people that have, you know, maybe a more established role in the Democratic Party that, that might be pushing her towards like not abandoning the idea, but like kind of finding some middle ground between what someone like Nancy Pelosi believes and what um, I think the left really wants, which is like free at the point of service, single payer. Um, Can I, yeah. Can I push back on that a little bit? I, I think that those concerns are valid. I don't, I don't share most of them. I, Elizabeth Warren, you, I think you have to look at her holistically. You can't just look at her in the scope of the last year of her presidential campaign. She's been a senator. 
since 2012, I think. Um, again, I talked a little bit about her entrance into the political arena. This is someone who is like, has really built her entire career on addressing corruption. There is nothing in her record that to me suggests that she would put anyone on her cabinet who could compromise her progressive vision. Even when she was in the Senate, she has had one of the, I think she and Bernie have both had the most, if you, if you track all the senators on the political spectrum, it's the two of them at the left. And Massachusetts has a lot of big industry and she's still been able to, like, even if she's, if she is taking money from them, it clearly hasn't affected her political North Star. Like one of her many campaign slogans is like the best president money can't buy or something like that. And I don't think that you attach yourself to a concept like that to just kind of walk it all back, especially if your entire political career thus far has also been sort of like pointing in that direction. Like, you know, she has said, particularly with the secretary of education, she, that's been a big pledge of hers is that she wants the next, if, if, if elected, she would appoint a secretary of education who is a former public school teacher and her party affiliation in the Senate is Democrat and Bernie's is independent. And he is like, much more um definitely much more openly antagonistic about the um you know the structures of the democratic party absolutely um but she's also been criticized like kamala's campaign says that she's not supportive enough of um other democrats <laughs> like <laughs> yeah i mean it's probably some kind of middle ground right like i don't see elizabeth warren as somebody who's like not willing to piss off the democratic party but i also think that like we can see examples of times that she's chosen not to i think like a lot of uh leftists are upset still that she wouldn't endorse bernie like i think that that's a big example of her not wanting to make enemies the interpretation that i see from very online bernie diehards sometimes that i think is the worst faith interpretation of everything that elizabeth warren says again i'm someone who like currently leans bernie i just don't think that we have to falsely represent Elizabeth Warren to highlight why Bernie's plans are more comprehensive in some areas than Warren's are. So I think even if we give her the best faith possible interpretation and say that, let's say that she means free at the point of service, Medicare for all, she fully is with Bernie. Mm -hmm. We accept all that. It's, I still don't know how this happens without it being extremely high on her priority list. She just added a healthcare section to her website last week. There's definitely other issues which she has chosen to highlight. And sometimes I like things like that she's doing better than Bernie. Like I think it's an, an it's a great thing that she has highlighted childcare. You know, like I think that childcare is something like free childcare is definitely something that Bernie believes in and wants, but like the fact that he hasn't made it a central issue in his campaign, like, you know, it, it leads me to think that that would maybe not get done or would be like low on the list of things that would get done. Like ACA was so hard to do and this will be even harder. Mm -hmm. And I just think that the fact that Bernie is like kind of staking his entire campaign on this makes him a way better bet for people who care about this issue a lot. Totally. I, I, there's no disagreement 
there should we talk about the gm strike for a second we should we're recording this podcast um on sunday gm workers have been striking for a week gm over the past three years has made 35 billion in profits um gm workers their contract expired last week and they're asking for higher wages better health care benefits greater job security and a path to permanent be, permanent worker status for a bunch of temps who are being treated in second class ways um the company is resisting is asking workers to kick in more for their health care um i've seen estimates as high as the, the that the com- I've seen estimates saying that the company is asking workers to pay 15% of the costs. I think GM is denying that. Um, right now they're paying three to four percent. And the the health plan that these workers have is I think considered like one of the best healthcare plans in the country. Like mm-hmm. this is what Joe Biden means when he says says that like some unions are have negotiated excellent health insurance plans. So a notable thing is that on Tuesday, like a day in the strike, basically, GM stopped paying for health care for all the striking workers. And, you know, they have one of the best plans, but it's like being held as leverage so that yeah. they can't push back on the bosses. And it just like annihilates Joe Biden's argument <laughs> that like unions don't need Medicare for all. Um, and this is actually there's a lot of overlap um in the demands of the union strikers um to the strikes that we've seen uh, that we talked about on our labor day episode um particularly the ones at the one at, at stop and shop comes to mind because it's it's another um uh, it's another comp- corporation that's making enormous profits that is nickel and diming its workers um, and you might remember that GM got $50 billion in, uh, in bailout money when, uh, when they were hovering around, around bankruptcy. <laughs> All right. Should we get into our interview with Aparna Nancherla? We should. You guys are going to love it. We love Aparna. She rocks. It's so good. Welcome back. Welcome back to Reply, guys. We are super thrilled about our guest this week, who is Aparna Nancherla, one of our favorite comedians. That's so nice. One of one of the best. We're so excited to have you, um, a fellow comedian and woman online. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a cursed combination. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's, uh, it's very trendy right now, though. <laughs> You've also so um, before we started recording, uh, we were we were talking, and uh, Parna was saying that she has uh, not been very online this week. I have also I had my brother change my password, so I've been Whoa. offline since I don't have any self control, so I can't Got like it. I can't look away. If yeah. I have access to it, I'm going to try to use it. I'm very sick, and <laughs> um, I literally would that. I mean, that sounds like. I'm in an AA meeting. I don't know. <laughs> like, but yeah, I've been, so I've been off since, since Tuesday. Um, how do you feel when you, cause I feel very, I've gone through all the stages of grieving about not, about not having, being online. Yeah. Yeah. But now I feel very peaceful. Do you get to that I point? I've strangely gone through 
a lot more phases this year of not wanting to be online. Like when oh, where I, when I check in, I'll be on there for like a minute and then I'll be like, I don't want to be here. And then I'll get off. And I don't, I was surprised myself to come to this place. And I don't know if it's just like burnout on yeah. burnout on just being scrolling or reading all the people's replies or just like, I think I follow too many people. So it's like almost like too much information at one time. But now I found that like I'll post and then I'll just log out and sometimes I won't even do that. Like I, cause I know once I open the app, I'll just fall down a rabbit. Yeah. Hole. Yeah. That still is an incredible amount of self-control <laughs> that I do not possess. But I really think it's because I've, I've grown a little, it's created like a visceral reaction in me where I like log in and I feel sick. Yeah. 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 I had yeah. that for a little while. Yeah. That weirdly doesn't stop me. Um, <laughs> really? I, you just push past it? I do. Yeah. And so I was actually, I was reading uh, the new book by Gia Tolentino. Oh, yeah. Trick I read Mirror. that. Yes. Yeah. It's so really the, good. the first uh, essay in it is called The Eye and Internet, I think. And it's, yeah. and she talks about how social media platforms are kind of, they depend on the fact that it is an unpleasant experience most of the time. Right. And they use this example of like a study where like rats were being uh, fed through a tube, but sometimes, sometimes it would be food that came out and sometimes when they would go to it, it would shock them. Right. Um, and, but they still kept going back right. because sometimes food would come out and that's, you know, the, the parallel for, yeah <laughs> no it's true because i remember yeah i remember her saying that in the study they said it is actually more addictive yeah. when you don't know what you're gonna get versus if it's always food or if it's always right. a shop i know what you're gonna get online <laughs> it's called reply guys which is how we started this podcast there's always reply guys like that's it's the thing is, is it's like like we will be at the end of the world in some kind of like sand situation <laughs> right. like the end of the end of planet of the yeah, apes yes wandering around looking for water and there will still be a reply guys they will always be there share cockroaches and reply guys will <laughs> survive the nuclear apocalypse do you have any uh experiences with reply guys that have been particularly annoying to you well i think my i think that might have led to this overall burnout because i would notice when i read responses like that it would create such intense like either rage or frustration or annoyance in me that i would get so frustrated that that would like derail my whole day yeah so then i was like why am i having such a strong reaction to these strangers i don't know and i think that made me kind of mad at myself so i was like well maybe i should just stop reading any of this but then i also feel like oddly that gives them the power <laughs> <laughs> and also just the fact that it probably takes them no effort or thought to post whatever they post no, no. and yeah i mean the social media basically relies on everyone being sort of like reductive about everything yes and it's just not a super as as important as it is uh it's just not a super healthy thing to be as addicted to as i am uh because yeah it definitely it makes me feel bad a lot but there are a lot of times where i mean 
it's the it's the rat experiment there's a lot of times when it's good i feel right. like what's gonna you live, happen you here, live for those times i feel like what's gonna happen here is like aparna <laughs> is mostly logged off you are uh bottoming out right now <laughs> and then probably soon you're gonna log off and where I'm, are you at Kate? i'm i'm still posting you're okay. you're posting okay. you love to post um, okay. i'm still posting and, and it's gonna be like i'm gonna be like one of those like uh 40 year olds that all of their friends are in aa and i'm just like doesn't anyone want to party <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna be but alone that's posting good. that's good that you're not <laughs> feeling these these i don't know these Kate's mullet, a, a VA. Effects. <laughs> no yeah. i get very upset and okay. i also like i get really upset but i think i fuel myself with the upsetness okay, sometimes okay but then i think yeah. what happens to me is like it's actually bad for comedy sometimes because i think i will become extremely upset about yes. very niche issues that only 200 people know right, about. Right, right. <laughs> and I'll just, I, I, you know, I had a party this morning uh, and I, I really ruined it for everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about a, a raging debate uh, that the online left has been having this week. I ruined my party talking about this and I'm just like, Kate ruined her party talking about Medicare for all. And what I said, what I said was that anyone who comes to this party should have known that that was a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that that's why I think that's why I've started liking Bernie Sanders more than I used to, because like as much as I relate to women, I also relate to people who ruin parties. <laughs> Like what's the Venn diagram there? Like just, I'm just a Kill person joys that, and I'm just a person that ruins parties by talking about the same thing again and again. And part of me respects it. You know, when I have been discovering ruins parties, feminism. Yes, <laughs> but that also feels like what Twitter is in a way. It's like what where you go when you can't ruin another party. You yeah, know? You're that's like, well, so I'll put true. my view here. Um, are you okay? So I, whenever I read. Not whenever I read an article about you, but a lot of the time when I read an article about you, uh, people will highlight your feminism. Mm. Um, and I, f I don't know, because I've been following you for a long time, but I feel like there was a kind of, I feel like post trump yeah your twitter became more explicitly feminist mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. i would agree with that yeah so what do you feel like changed i think it was like a lot of probably left people where i was embarrassed to think that i didn't think he would be elected and then afterwards i was like well clearly things are a lot worse than i thought they were and I don't know. I think I sort of found it a little bit more necessary to post things that actually deserved amplifying versus just jokes or just like trying to make quips on the news. So I think in that sense, it felt like even if even when I was trying to write something funny, it felt like it was more important to make it in service of maybe a larger point everyone talks about like the halcyon days of Twitter being sure. just jokes. Sure. And it's like, yeah, well, a lot of the conversations that I'm privy to on mm -hmm. Twitter are a lot more intense now, but I don't know if it's necessarily a wholly bad thing. Like there's still jokes mm -hmm. on Twitter. There's yeah. still like no one killed Twitter comedy because no. <laughs> like yeah. the only thing that kills comedy is PC culture. Right. I think we can all agree. I think we can all agree. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but I think mo- a lot of the ways I've been politicized in my life was sort of after being exposed to more information that I was kind of either sheltered from before or just didn't come to earlier in my life. Like I think after working for Totally Biased, I felt like opened up to a lot more social justice issues. So I think it was in that sense, I feel like I, I'm a late bloomer in a lot of ways, at least maybe just because of like privilege and living in the suburbs and just like not being aware of a lot of the injustice going on in the world. You grew up in DC, right? I grew up in Northern Virginia. So like outside DC in the, in on a cul-de-sac. And is it like, is DC or Northern Virginia, like Mm -hmm. is it, are the people around you mostly people that are involved in politics in some way? We, I mean, we grew up in a neighborhood where I would say a lot of people were kind of in white collar professional jobs, but not necessarily a lot in politics and maybe more just like nonprofit or like World Bank, but not necessarily like overtly political. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel, I always feel like whenever I go to DC, I'm like, this is a fun place to visit, but it'd be very intense to live in this area. Yeah. And oddly, it's kind of depoliticized in a way. I don't know because if it's like where the government is located, but it's like a lot of people almost like try to avoid being overly political because they don't know what other people's politics are. That makes a lot of sense. I think, yeah, DC is such an interesting place it's just weird to have like an entire town that kind of treats politics like a sport and yeah uh i don't love it yeah <laughs> i feel like that's what brooklyn is like too though but like in a very left way oh maybe <laughs> yeah i mean or maybe that's like my friends but <laughs> yeah. i feel like to me like one thing that's been nice about like moving to new york versus like you've lived in la too right mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like i kind of i like it on this coast yeah. because in la people would always be like um have you ever thought about relaxing <laughs> right right here right. no one thinks of asking that question no, i like that you can all. like walk around being really riled up all the time you know yeah and kind of the way la that entertainment pervades everything i feel like and and because everyone works in the industry you can't really like be like well this show is terrible because you're like i actually know someone who works for this show i think dc is like that too where you can't really be overtly like well this is bad because everyone is sort of like it's so incestuous yeah Yeah. connected to what somebody that's like a famous quotation that like dc is hollywood for ugly people yeah 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 um one thing i've thought about a lot for me also being a woman that like works i guess sometimes works hopefully works um (laughs) in the entertainment industry you know i i also feel like uh there's a lot of times where like what's happening doesn't really align with my values like sometimes in a really overt way like creepy man being working on stuff but like a lot of the time in a less overt way even just like i have to maybe wear more makeup than i normally do right i don't really feel super comfortable like being a person who thinks a lot about like physical stuff and like i i like to just think about like uh feminism all day Mm -hmm. and uh constantly posting uh, (laughs) how bernie sanders is feminist how he's not feminist (laughs) and just to have these conversations with the 15 other people that want to have them Um, but what i was thinking about is you seem like someone that is like you seem very good at holding true to your values and who you are even amidst like an industry and a culture that isn't always like on board with that stuff 
Yeah, I don't know though. It's hard because I agree with you. I feel like it's so easy. Like even just projects you're given on a regular basis where you're like, well, I don't like everything almost feels like six degrees of someone who you're like, I should not be supporting this person, you know? So it's like everything feels like degrees of complicity and a little bit you have to be like, well, I have to pick my battles, you know, like, is this the one that is going to deserve my energy uh, versus like a bigger one that I want to to make a point on. So I, I, I think it's a, a little bit also making peace with the fact that you can't always keep up every principle that you stand for to the, you know, down to the letter. That makes sense. Yeah. Which is sometimes a little disheartening, I would say. Yeah, it is. It is just hardening, but it, it also like, I don't know, it's hardening in some ways. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, I went to acting school when I was young mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like, um, I think at that time, like th- they were really trying to like scare us. They were like, oh, you know, like if you guys ever work, you know, in the industry <laughs> or whatever, like everyone's just going to like ask you to lose weight and everybody's going to like, you know, everyone's going to be like an old guy. And I, and I find that that's like not like super true right, anymore. Right. Like I have like, like I feel like many people in positions of power are women now and are yes. like very interested in, um, new ideas i don't know like it it does seem like it's changing but i i don't know have you seen a change i think i've seen changes in terms of more shows being made by people who yeah are outside that old school box of like old white man who's kind of out of touch like it's more women it's more people of color it's more people who you know who don't fit into the same idea of like gender and sexuality and i think that is good but i think it's still there is still very much that presence of that old school oh mentality. yeah well because those are the very much the people who are highest yes exactly on the totem pole um who are like making ultimately making the decisions mm-hmm. um network executives and the like um so yeah even, yeah so even then because of capitalism it's a little bit like well are you just cashing in on this moment of yeah. like other being hot and interesting and are you gonna move on back to like how it was before yeah it's within. like it's like exxon mobile um having like a rainbow flag yes. during Pro- pride week yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly um <laughs> speaking of capitalism <laughs> late stage capitalism do, yes do you stand or do you not stand <laughs> yeah. do this i is- support it um more than i want to no hopefully mm. not i it's it's hard because actually that comes up a lot in that trick mirror book too yeah just like how it's hard not to be a nihilist in late stage capitalism because it does feel like how do we undo this like very complicated mess we've created well i have the answer do you really (laughs) we post (laughs) is that that why we are supposed to post um (laughs) that's like that's such a good point and yeah, there was um, a lot of that book that I really do recommend because I, I think that capitalism, late late capitalism's influence on how we see ourselves and each other and how it permeates everything in our life is kind of a through line of that of those essays. Mm-hmm. And they're one of the essays is called "Always Be Optimizing," and it's about and it's right. particularly an intersection about how women view themselves and how women have been able to essentially like 
women's empowerment a lot of times has just become ways that women have found a workaround of late capitalism. They've been able to like commodify themselves because the only professions where women significantly out earn men are Instagram influencer, porn, and modeling. So what options we have? (laughs) It's a pretty, pretty nice wide array. So um, love those. I'm going (laughs) to... gonna decide on one of the three uh um so i can't wait but yeah it's just like basically those are the women who have found a way to kind of fit into the way that a patriarchal society wants to objectify them and that's how they make money and that's you know right and then some people are like well that's empowering yeah they exactly. re- reclaimed the control but then it's like is is it yeah i I, I, this is also a sex negative podcast uh, because of me only i don't know (laughs) yeah i mean because it's i always feel conflicted about that stuff because i feel like i mean things are things are kind of changing but i feel like like especially sort of um pre-trump yeah there was this like thread of feminism that were like actually what is the most feminist is being really hot <laughs> right 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 i, I, I still not, think i still think I there's that, that. And, I, and i also think that there's another one that's like what's the most feminist is being rich which yeah. is right cheryl sandberg well and it's thing. also like yeah so in a way like the kind of critique of that idea like it has to be nuanced right because right. it's like well you know we should get to look however the fuck we want to look yeah but you know it's also like we shouldn't have to look a certain way and it like that kind of concept of like girl boss feminism that's like you know mm-hmm. i am um my like i, I am a brand you yeah. know that is it's commodifying I, it's yourself. annoying yeah. to me because i yeah. don't like capitalism but it's also like annoying to me because i just i don't want to have to like i know it sounds I like a lot of work and i, I don't want to do it yeah exactly <laughs> i don't want to have to do it yeah, yeah. but then at the i same have to time, spend a lot of time posting yeah at the same time we're all tweeting uh, <laughs> all the time influencing through yeah i don't way. know i feel like the point of feminism at the end of the day for me has always been like shouldn't it be that you're allowed to do whatever you want and still just be considered a whole person. And so then I feel like if there are these really rigid standards for like what is and isn't a good feminist, that kind of feels like it's undermining what feminism is. I agree. Uh, Yeah. And I think that anti-feminists and people who like really fundamentally oppose the, the goals and objectives of feminisms love to see infighting about yes, that. Yes. Um, and I do think that ev- basically every progressive movement devours their own. Um, Definitely. And that's, that sucks. Um, but there were a lot of people who were super fucking, a lot of terrible people who were super fucking psyched um, to see internal conflict with the women's march and stuff like that yeah um and that's a bummer to see sometimes uh it's a bummer to see women fighting each other like they always do no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> i think it's amazing that women have the reputation for being the gender that likes to fight each other when men are pretty much usually the ones that come up with the idea of dropping bombs yeah right. not always but a lot of the time right that was, I do think that has led to my social media burnout a good deal is just 
when I've posted political things and then people have responded in a way where it's nitpicking like, oh, oh yeah. but what about this cause? Or like you're actually not representing this group that has been like a key part of this issue. And I'm like, I can't fit all that in yeah. 280 characters. And then I get like disheartened about saying anything at all. So I think that weirdly it has been like people who I share the most idealistically with that throw me off the most in terms of responding. I don't think that's weird at all. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a, pr- for a lot of us, that's like a pretty universal experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it sucks. It's definitely the thing that makes me the most upset and makes me want to log off the yeah. most is yeah. because, yeah, it's, it sucks because these people are strangers. They don't know you yeah. and they are, everything becomes like an accusation right. in a way that's so counterproductive. Yeah. And it's just a waste of fucking time a lot of the times. I don't know. Right. But one of the things that I think you are particularly good at and I've always really admired about you is that you, I think, are very selective about what you make jokes about. Mm-hmm. And you will not like I will just tweet and tweet about something. And I feel like you post like one or two jokes about something and they're always like very well crafted and funny, but also have a point. And my question is, as someone who is dumb, how do you do that? No No way. I feel like I post and delete too, though. Oh, I delete so many. I delete so many tweets. Yeah. Because sometimes you really do just tweet out of emotion or you're just like, I just want to say a thing. And then I'll think I'll look at it again. I'll be like, no, this is not. Yeah. Deleted your Shane Gillis fan post. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I should think this through. Um, Yeah. But I think it is. I don't know because I don't think I'm that calculated about it really when I'm I think I'll try to think of an angle or two whenever I have like an issue that I want to say something on but I don't think it's always it, it like sometimes I'll delete and then other times I think I will be like oh I'm not even going to say anything about this issue I don't feel like I have anything to add that hasn't already been covered I yeah I yeah. feel that way a lot yeah um and so many of these issues especially the sort of the ones that really go around on social media and that kind of exist in a vacuum on social media um i'm just like well this has like been talked about to death and yeah. I, like a lot of them do get talked about to death so i just don't uh i don't want to say anything but i i'm also acting like i'm at all restrained online and i'm not i just <laughs> fucking let it go uh and my my twitter reflects that it is uh <laughs> Uh, if you have ever read it, I'm sorry. You know what I'm hearing in your like. Uh, you know what I'm hearing in your your story is that this definitely this trajectory definitely ends with you becoming a Christian. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, and then I found Jesus, and, and found he, God. by the grace of His beautiful heart, helped me get off Twitter. Um, I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of Christians posting a lot. They're posting. Oh, yeah. That's Christian girl autumn. You Christ- know, Christians love to post. Um, love to my post. aunt is on my Facebook. I had to stop posting on my Facebook <gasps> because my aunt just posts on there. I posted something about how I thought um, abortion should be legal, which I do believe. Yeah. Uh, but my aunt thought I was pregnant and wrote <gasps> me like a long thing about how I should keep oh, my baby. No. I was like, hi, I'm not pregnant. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Sorry. I actually, um, yeah, I made uh, a burner account as Kate's aunt, and that was all (laughs) me. Uh, (laughs) 
you're like i no, had some I, extra time i agree i mean yeah by the end of this podcast uh you know however however long kate and i keep doing this i absolutely will have become a quaker <laughs> i think um jp mcdade had a funny tweet uh he was like anyone ever feel like they're two to three bad life decisions away from joining one of those cool churches <laughs> <laughs> i feel that way all the time I know. all the time I, I understand why people do it it's nice to have like we have comedy and that's like a huge right. community yeah and, like i have a friend who a new friend who just moved to new york um and he is like wondering how to meet people here and i you know I'm, I'm just like oh yeah that's something i never had to think about right like, i just got to come here and like have a ton of friends um, I mean, yeah, it's mostly are alcoholics um, <laughs> and very sad, but yeah. you know, but I yeah, love it. We post, we post, we post. Um, so how do you feel about like the topics that you choose to um, write about online versus like what you talk about in your standup? Is there a difference? Yeah, I think so. I would say online, I'm more overtly political than in my standup because I, I don't know if it's because in a room full of like a live audience, it almost feels like you can't, maybe it is the fact that social media lacks some nuance and it feels like if you say it out loud, you there's like a lot more ground to cover in mm -hmm. terms of to capturing all the angles of it. And I don't think my stand-up writing has necessarily caught up to the kind of black and white nature of social media. You know what I mean? Like if I want to write a bit about something, I want to handle it like a little more delicately than I would online. I think yeah. that's good. Yeah. I mean, like super unnuanced stand-up is like pretty boring a lot yeah. of the time. I, don't um, know. I guess it's not really the nature of my stand-up. So in, in that sense, I think it's just easier to yell online <laughs> than yeah. it is on stage, at least for me. And boy, do we. Uh, <laughs> so how about like, how about like your your fans do you feel like there are people that come to you through stand-up that are then like surprised about your political opinions or does anyone who likes your stand-up like pretty much end up agreeing with you about other things i think there's a lot of overlap for the most part but then there are people who get mad if i get political they're like that's not what i wanted <laughs> from you. yeah that's that's so interesting i'm very much the same way. I also just think a lot of what goes on in politics that is inherently not funny. And right. uh, you have to be like much more skilled than I am to, or there has to be something in there that is inherently funny. But I've had people who like follow me on Twitter come to my shows and they're like, I can't believe you didn't do any jokes about politics. Oh, really? Because I'm like so political right, online. Right, right, right. Um, and I was like, yeah, no, because I wanted everyone to enjoy themselves. <laughs> I feel like stand-up audiences like get very sad if you talk about political yeah. stuff sometimes because it's like they came to get away from that. I, I say that all the time. It's like the one thing that's so great to where you can just like escape. There has always been like an escapist element to comedy and mm -hmm. I don't want to like, oh, it's just seeing someone who's doing basically almost like reading tweets on stage about right, right. politics i'm like what are we doing here this is joyless yeah i i noticed because it's interesting because i i host you know this weekly show butter boy in in Great brooklyn show. Love Thank that show. You guys. we stand we stand we oh, stand good. Butter, oh good oh good um but i feel like the producer makes an effort to book a lot of non-straight white 
male absolutely and i think like a lot of them do like their acts are more overtly political just by the fact that they're operating in a space that hasn't traditionally been welcoming to them but i do think at the end of the day it's like a privilege as a comedian to be able to talk about you know the everyday or like the nothing and i think everyone should be allowed to do that you know like i i don't think every trans comedian is supposed to like tell everyone what it's like to be trans if they don't want to like they should be allowed to talk about whatever they want totally yeah so i think in that sense i'm like you can't put an agenda on like every comedian even if their social media is different like i I don't think it's a fair comparison yeah i've also gotten uh, you know some people think that i should have like more jokes about being a woman i'm like i'm a woman telling the jokes (laughs) right just who cares just why do why does everything i don't know Uh, people think i should have less jokes about being a woman So you I don't can't know. win. It's possible we, that there's no, no that's winning. That's true. This we shit. can't. Yeah. You I don't, can't no, I don't win. think. I don't think that any of us can win. One thing I've wondered about um, is like during the time I've known you, I've just seen your career like skyrocket so intensely, um, and I also know that you talk about being an introvert a lot, and I was just wondering like how you handle the experience of like that much like growing attention is it stressful i think it's stressful i feel like i've handled it in a i don't even know if i've handled it if that's fair to say i because i think i in a lot of ways it's made my anxiety go up both around performing and then just around being at shows where it's almost like that feeling that you're being like looked at or scrutinized more whether it's actually real or you're just like perceiving it because of like other attention you're getting. So I think in that sense, I've had to draw firmer boundaries around like, you know, how much I'm willing to give of myself to people where it's like, I don't have to say yes to every single thing that comes my way. And that's hard because I think when you start, you're told to say yes to everything and you're like any stage time is good stage time. And now I'm in a fortunate position to not have to say yes to everything. And it's like, being able to trust myself enough to know which decisions or opportunities are worth taking and then which ones are okay to say no to. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you for saying yes to reply, guys. <laughs> of course. You guys are the best. I, one of my favorite memories of you on stage is, I think it, it's, it's got to, it had to have been years ago, but I was at a show and you went up uh, fully wearing your winter coat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sounds like me. And I was like, She's for me. <laughs> <laughs> She's one of my tribe. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> Not even trying. No, Not I love that. I, yeah. Uh, Joe Firestone brings her purse on stage, oh, which yeah. is. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> another thing that I stand. Yeah. Um, are there any issues in particular that come up over and over again, like in the public discourse or in the national discourse that like are really personal to you and you really care about? I think around, I mean, I think reproductive rights is a big one for me. Against, right? Yeah. Against, yes. Parna is a known MRA. Yeah. She's a member of the Proud Boys. Just just one of the things I'm about. Um, Yeah, no, that one's big. I think climate stuff is big. It's hard because it, it's like essentially everything gets boiled down to talking points and then you kind of sometimes lose sight of like why you actually care about a thing. But um, 
think gun control sadly keeps coming up mm-hmm. and feels pretty disheartening a lot yeah. of the time. And maybe those those are maybe the big ones. And then immigration, I think, is yeah. also an ongoing sore wound. <laughs> Uh, there's so many it's, I was uh, like, I it's all bad p- i can't pick <laughs> oh uh, man you have this bit that i just love so much about being a person with anxiety and how in some ways this i'm like ruining the, this your bit with this description but like how anxiety it, this is like a great time for anxious people because it is the thing that we've been practicing for yeah yeah it i, I don't know it just feels I guess in a lot of ways, this is just what late stage capitalism is, but it just feels like you're kind of like spinning your wheels and like always reaching for something that you will never actually get. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like by design. Yeah. It's uh, like that's, that's how the system was set up. Yeah, um, it's like for every horrible article about why like millennials don't have savings or own homes or are not getting married or having children. It's yeah. like, why don't we go up the ladder a little bit and look at the structures that led us here? <laughs> right, right. So I think video it, games. Video yeah. games. I saw video games. Yeah. Violence on TV. Um, yeah. So I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like trying to not just become a complete cynic about everything. Yeah. Which oddly, like I think is cheesy, but I think it's like spending like actual time with humans like it face to face is weirdly like scratching that itch for me lately of and not even just like at a stand-up show where I might not know everyone but you know just with like family and friends and like people that I can actually talk to where you're not just like shouting out into a void or yeah only interfacing with strangers I have since I've gotten involved in um like volunteering for um political organizations Mm -hmm. it's really allowed me to decompress from a lot of the like infighting that goes on on twitter and things like that yeah like getting kind of trying to in some way like give back and actually like contribute or do what i can has made me feel so much better yeah i think that i think what's tricky about social media is like numbers wise you maybe feel like oh well this is a better use of my time because i'm reaching a bigger audience this way but versus you know like volunteering in my community or something but i feel like as a human like you get there's something you get from that actual interfacing with other people that you're not getting able to get on the internet i don't even know if social media has changed anybody's mind about anything that's what i always feel like i'm not actually yeah i mean reaching yeah i've like i've become more informed about things that i was already leaning towards on social media like i've you know that is uh it's it's good it's good for getting information and like kind of seeing like especially it's good for getting to see perspectives from people that like aren't always that wouldn't be represented if like the only thing that we had was like the new york times opinion column i'm like okay well it seems like everybody uh, is either like uh brett stevens (laughs) who was conservative or marine dowd who was liberal you know like that would that would be a shitty world but um yeah i don't think that it's really changed people's minds very much and i think face to face you can actually move the needle sometimes yeah and also it's just like it's it's the difference between having a conversation over like text or talking to someone face to face or having a phone call um actually amanda mall just did uh 
a piece for the Atlantic, like in defense of of phone calls to, of talking on the oh, phone. Oh wow! And I know a lot of people hate it. Um, I don't. I love it. I love talking on the phone. I I love it with friends, not with like people right, I don't right. know, but. Um, yeah, like I definitely get more social anxiety to have a phone call, but then I always find it more rewarding. Yeah, because there's always. so much, there's so much intonation that's lost over, mm-hmm. and and so much that can be like misread or misinterpreted and yeah. things like that. And I just, um, yeah, you know, I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get a a landline, I think, and become a Christian. Well, and the good thing about you having a landline is that you will be included in the polls. 100%. I never want to go so far as to say that, like, social media is not real life because there are observable ways in which it clearly is, like, you know, the Arab Spring. Yes, (laughs) right. But but I do think that it can irony poison people and uh, can make people very cynical and unproductive we became ways. friends though in a social Is media that argument you guys met? yeah so d- d- the first time we really connected was online i just i kind of like met my whole social right. group in new york from uh, a facebook argument yeah so it is real. It's real. Yeah, right, right. That's the, pro- that's the a- Arab Spring and Kate's friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two, really Two equally important. Points. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's what's so tricky about it. Like it has, like I met my boyfriend on a dating app. Like there are things that I'm like, I can't yeah. deny that this wouldn't have happened without the internet. But I, but then I, but I think what is made me feel more, um, I don't know fickle towards it lately is that just the fact that all these corporations like have essentially control like what information we're seeing at all and we have less control than we think we do is but then they're creating the illusion that we're coming to these decisions on our own that's the part that kind of gets me like yeah i don't know (laughs) we might not have free will at all right oh Um, my gosh (laughs) (laughs) was it weird when you were like totally don't have to answer this if you don't want to but was it weird when you were on dating apps did people recognize you and stuff i think a little bit but i i don't think it's fair but whenever it felt like someone knew me or had seen me at a show i was kind of like well i can't i can't swipe on you yeah (laughs) it's already weird yeah so i think the the guy my boyfriend now like he had never i think he had maybe watched totally bias back in the day so i looked vaguely familiar to him but more or less he didn't know who i was it just made it just it starts it out on a more equal oh yeah field. i mean kate and i have talked about this before but um i think we've both gotten dms uh on dating apps from people who like recognize us from yeah. twitter or stand up or something like that and it's um yeah, it's happened for because of my Twitter a number of times, and it's I hate it. <laughs> I know it's a weird feeling, and I I'm probably the only person who doesn't know this, but I was talking recently with some other um, women comedians backstage at a show about how a lot of straight male comedians it's like they get a not never ending stream of DMs from women after shows. And, yeah, also after shows, women will just go up to yes, them. Yes, I have never had a man no, come up to me never. after a show only to give me like advice yeah, yeah absolutely same. or a tip yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah tell, tell me how i'm doing stand-up wrong yeah. thank oh you my gosh. um it's yeah or that so he much. doesn't like other female comedians right. but he likes me right 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's my the, favorite. When women I, say that, it breaks oh, my heart. Isn't that the saddest That's, thing? Yeah. I usually don't find women funny. I'm like, well, fix your brain. I, <laughs> like, I, I, don't tell me this. Yeah. <sighs> so many women voted for Trump. It's I know. true. White ladies. White ladies. We're sorry. <laughs> Is this an atonement podcast? That's that was our first draft name, the Atonement <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we always end the show the same way. White woman or bad? Uh, <laughs> no, I think, okay, I will. I will say that I think that this is an Atonement Podcast for me in a way, but not for like, not for uh, Trump. I think right. that I think that when I started comedy, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, I was like very much in the girl boss feminism camp um Mm -hmm. like i was very 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 not conscious of the economic privilege that i had in my life and the ways that that influenced me and my feminism was like very much like centered on things like being extremely upset about like like things that just feel very trivial now and i'm not trying to like say that people can't get upset about like small instances of casual sexism it's like very upsetting and also it can be really funny to make fun of but like i feel like we had a year-long discourse on manspreading yeah but i I also feel like it's important (laughs) to me personally to like atone for that i feel like my own version of feminism was like super limited and that i actually think that it's time for feminists to like start caring about shit like healthcare for everybody and housing for everybody and it just you know we can we can talk about man spreading sometimes but not all the time right yeah yeah as much as i want to talk about it all the time no yeah. uh, <laughs> isn't it wild when sometimes there will be like literally two dudes on like one side of a subway and they are somehow taking up most of it yeah <laughs> have you tried man spreading though it's fun well, really? I, I never tried Has it, it worked? but that's I mean, because it's, it's nice to just relax it's I like getting like to sleep a in a bed all by yourself a short kind of a smaller person people frequently just don't even see me as like taking up space at all so they're just like even if i'm trying to take up space they're already like there's no one here Parna, for those of you who don't know, is a, a short king. Uh, <laughs> yep. Um, yep. No, it's, uh, I get, I have, uh, I, I feel very self-conscious. I'm, you know, I'm, for a woman, I'm tall. I'm 5'11", and I, so I always feel like I'm taking up too much space. Uh, one, because I'm tall, and two, because I'm a woman. I don't know. I have a theory that, like, people, are, men are really condescending to me, and it sounds like it happens to you just as much julia but i have a i have a theory that people may condescend to me even a little bit extra because i'm very short and they're already looking down on me does that happen yeah i think so i think they think either that they need to like take care of you or there's like some kind of internal logic of like oh you're you're not grown yet (laughs) (laughs) you need me to help you yeah no i think that that's totally that's totally fair i'm also like yeah i'm a tall woman with like a deep and assertive speaking voice i think that right. i just like naturally have qualities that are like recognizable to men as something that yeah. they should be able to interpret or right whatever right um which is stupid because um 
you know, again, both of you are short kings who are <laughs> with beautiful, beautiful voices, beautiful speaking voices, and you deserve to be heard. That's that whole thing, too, about how, like, women with vocal fry are, it's like, yeah. you can't take them seriously. Yeah. It's like, that's not, you can't police how people speak. Uh, <laughs> I would like to ask you before we leave if you have anything to plug or where our listeners can find oh, your amazing comedy. What do I want to plug? Uh, I'll be at the High Plains Festival. With you, I'll weekend. be there with you. Oh, great. We oh will my be gosh, at the High what a Plains treat. Festival. We can uh, party in a real low-key way together. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. We can ruin a green room with our views. I love that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that work. Thank yeah. you for doing that. And you're... Twitter handle is a par napkin. A par napkin. And she's an amazing special on Netflix. Thank you. So she's, do you. Oh, thanks. She's the best. And we don't deserve her, and neither do you. Um, <laughs> and to the people of Washington, D.C., if there's anyone from D.C. who listens to the podcast and is a fan, um, I'm glad to retract everything I said about your city <laughs> if I knew that you like my podcast and you said anything nice about it. Um, but Thank you so much for being being with us today. Thank you guys for having me. This was so much fun. This Thanks was so fun. Thanks, Aparna. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's and I'm at O Julia tweets O H Julia tweets and Twitter is where you can also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours.